I kind of will understand when Tesla takes up over the world one day. I don't know how bugs even exist, given how many I killed per hour with my car. I realized that, I hate to say it, um, but truck drivers are assholes. So I did that. I looked around, and I realized that I was in this weird gas station, the first one I've ever been in that's also a gun shop. Well, welcome listeners, Landline Podcast, Saul versus Alex, Alex versus Saul in person on the porch in Hanover, New Hampshire, 22 Occam Ridge. Don't, don't stalk my parents. Um, enjoying a beautiful July 1st in New England. It is warm. It is threatening to be humid. There are some clouds, some sun, but the birds are chirping. The town is quiet, and life is generally pretty good, other than the mediocre crap burrito I just had. I think that, and that's crap, like C-R-E-P-E, not crap, although it was pretty crappy. Um, life is amazing, right, Saul? Aren't you glad to be here in person? Hello, hello, everyone. And Alex, it's great to be uh, sitting across from you on a couple of couches outside on the porch, legs folded at a pleasant angle, drinking a nice, hot, strong cup of french press coffee that you just made uh and not pacing anxiously in a california apartment we're sitting here it's in person the podcast is back first of july i think it's going to be a great audio session i do too and you know i think the first lesson that we're teaching everyone here is if you can't make your own money just make sure you have a good nepotism structure because we're sitting in an incredible outdoor podcast studio that neither of us did anything to procure other than knowing the people who own it and being related to them. So I think there's something to be said for that, as as is the case with the lake house you're living in this summer, as is the case with your Pieta tear downtown. Rent-free, I mean, all of them. <laughs> exactly. I, I can't overstate that to the listeners. Um, don't worry about making money, becoming successful, any of those things. Uh, just make sure that you marry into it befriend yourself into it uh have some relatives that you didn't know about uh and then life is good who needs to worry about the rat race just make sure you have the connections you know some people might be judgmental about how we're sort of like ha 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 like spoiled kids who got to podcast at their parents house but you know i think there's an angle there to to explore which is is there a how-to guide out there of how to get nepotism from somebody other than your parents. Because that could be a skill that lower-class people, middle-class people, or I should say low-income, middle-income people. Is there any way to go from a middle income to the nepotism of a high income? I mean, what do you do? You become sort of like, it's like Tom Ripley. It's like Well, there is, there is that manual, definitely. It's 850 pages long. It was written in about 1920 by Theodore Dreiser, and it's called An American Tragedy. Uh, it contains everything you just said, plus I give away the plot a little, but he ends up drowning the girl he was supposed to marry. It's always some sort of like horrible murder at the end of those stories. Like I, I feel like the talented Mr. Ripley is a similar tale. Dickie. Another murder, yep. Exactly. 
And what was you know about Dreisel? Let's do five minutes on Dreisel. So give us a little background on that whole situation. Flex your literary muscle. That's what you're in New Hampshire to do. Well, Theodore Dreiser, uh, a lot of people uh, mock him for his line-by-line writing style, um, but he told great stories. Uh, two most famous ones, I'd say Sister Carrie and American Tragedy, both big, big, meaty books. I'd say a great summer read if you haven't gotten around to them. Uh, telling stories about protagonists who start out in deep poverty and work their way up. One has a sort of happier ending on paper than the other. Um, but he was writing about American issues, class, social, income equality, and that sort of upward striving that we find ourselves here on your porch doing much of the same thing about. I'm not going to drown you in a Occam Pond on a rowboat after the podcast is over, but the principle holds. So there was a whole uh, a movement of writers like that, and that was really out of the 20s. Is that like a 20s thing where it was there were, there were the very rich in the roaring 20s and then there were the people who were still working industrial jobs or emigrating from other countries and trying to make it big and like the glitzy glamour of the big city? Do I have those t- dates right or was it before that? Was it like- He was probably actually writing a little before that because um, his books are set late 19th century. Um, so he was probably he was probably publishing these books maybe like 1910 or something like that, but they're they're set I believe late 1800s, maybe very early 1900s. He was kind of he was a uh, he preceded Fitzgerald, for example. So the end of the end of like agrarian industrial revolution into sort of like modern commercialism of the day, like exactly like having running water, probably electricity, maybe even refrigeration. Maybe I mean, when was the first motor car? Right at the turn of the century, I think. So. It's like the the great internet boom of the 19th century was was his boom from country or from poor squalid city to Manhattan, right? I mean, a lot of that stuff's happening in New York. Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New New York and Chicago were the um the big places. Uh, a lot of American tragedy is set on what would be the equivalent of like Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard or something. A, current, a sort of uh, a little playground for the wealthy to go and enjoy their summers all right well luckily for us all no one who listens to our podcast has any idea about this writer or either of those books and really they probably don't check them out this summer check them out this summer so they can't plug for dreiser they can't fact check us until they do we challenge you to read a book by this gentleman dreiser not dreisel dreiser theodore dreiser i had to read a book of his for a uh college literature class which resulted in a lesbian um betting me after the last session so that was a positive i will probably take that part out these things happen (laughs) so um i wanted to compliment you on a great um blueberry crumble sorry berry crumble last night uh i thought that was a terrific evening for those who didn't have the good fortune to attend uh we were sitting around a hill one of the tallest hills in the upper valley i'd say uh, our friend has a beautiful airstream set up there. The stars were out. Uh, sparklers were brought into play. There was a campfire, some grilling. Uh, and I love just standing around with a bunch of close friends eating a sweet, sweet blueberry crumble. I keep calling it blueberry. That's fine. You can call it whatever you want. Blueberries aren't in season for another couple of weeks. So it was cherry strawberry. I hand-pitted a bunch of um, delicious Washington cherries and 
got some field strawberries from Massachusetts. And I have a lot to say about strawberries in Massachusetts, of course, obviously, given it's July 1. But I want to say something that you just made me think of, which is the sparklers. Um, there are good friendships in the world. There are good groups of friends in the world. And there are people, um, you know, who you feel a special type of friendship with where you can just be yourself and do your thing. And I think we all have different versions of that. And they come from different places. Ours, I feel like... I can speak for myself when saying that group for me is my high school friends and, and my high school friends extended and they've all gone off to do cool things and some of them have come back to our hometown and, and that's great because they're doing cool things now. But what was such an amazing representation of the friendship and kinship I'm trying to portray in this long story that hasn't had any details yet is I went into the Airstream to wash my hands after you know, either chugging from a bottle of sparkling rosé or pissing in the grass or, like, licking the uh, cast iron pan of crisp with my tongue or whatever it was at that point. I'd had a few, had a few pops, and came and been given a sparkler, but I'd sort of, like, drunkenly forgotten about it. Came back out of the Airstream, and um, Dire Straits' Money for Nothing is playing, and I look up... And in this dark field under the stars, a group of people that I've known for 30 years, basically, 25 years, are dancing in a circle with sparklers, completely unironically, completely unembarrassingly, and, like, making their sparklers dance to Mark Knopfler's guitar. And fairly sober, too, I might add. I, yeah, I mean, some... Fairly. Well, you showed up late, so I think you're... Not only were you fairly sober, but your framework of the evening was probably a little bit off. I do always tend to assume that everyone else is exactly where I am at any point in time in terms of those things. So... It was amazing. I mean, it was incredible. These are these include people who I haven't seen for two years, like Mike, who lives in Chile, who's on podcasts um, in the fall about the Patriots, and people's wives, people's girlfriends, people's fiancés, people's new pregnancies, a lot of people who haven't hung out that much, and everyone is just chilling, enjoying. There wasn't a cell phone within metaphysically 100 miles of that location even though one was playing the music and uh that was the only one and it was incredible i mean that's pretty special right we can we can affirm that that's a pretty special moment it was a great night i gotta say it was a it was one of those feel-good evenings now my only feeling a little bit alex was you were being a little elusive i found when i got up there a little hard to pin down well, Saul, our relationship right now is, like, very intense and completely over the phone, and it was quite shocking for me to see your face, to be honest. And it's kind of like seeing a girl I'd been having an affair on the Internet with, and now I needed to, like, actually, like, metaphysically, uh, you know. She had bought the plane ticket, <laughs> packed a suitcase, and showed up to the front door. Yeah, I was like, whoa, there he is, with blazer and uh, tailored pants to, to boot. So, um so maybe that was it. As as the girl who bought the plane ticket, I was expecting like a big hug, some special attention, maybe a little alone time, and you just withdrew into the fabric of the party because you weren't sure exactly what to do about it. Well, anyone who knows me knows that I'm good at almost everything, but one one of the things that I can highlight in this conversation is that I'm really good at assessing a situation and sort of applying what I deem to be the right amount of pressure in the places it needs. And I did the math very quickly that I knew I was going to get to podcast with you today. 
I had spoken with you on the phone repeatedly regarding the podcast, regarding your dating life, regarding our wine company. You know, we talk three, four times a week at length. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to hang up on you. Three or four times a day, I'd even say. And so I felt like I should let let you breathe with the group. I mean, I also didn't want to come on too strong and sort of fulfill everyone's fantasy that we were going to do a live pad- podcast in front of them. Like, it's also in in, in seriousness, in, in seriousness, and we're, we're not drinking, we're drinking coffee. So if you want to uh, make fun of me for not being able to keep my words straight. It's just my brain. It's not my drinking problem. So, um, have some more gin in that cup. <laughs> so, so in in all seriousness, it's awkward seeing someone that you podcast with in person, don't you think? It's like especially in front of the 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 core group of people who listen to your podcast, or at least some of them. I mean, that I think, adds a different dimension. Absolutely. I think our greatest fan was at that party, and she's self described as such. Um, which was fantastic. Yeah, she loves it. But what are we supposed to do? Like, do, I, I'm embarrassed a little bit. That's why I really want to. You know, that's why I'm 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 more excited about people I don't know that listen to the podcast than people who do because I I worry that I talk so much in all situations that if they are electing to to actually play my voice on their personal device while they're driving in their car or running or whatever that I need to give them a break from that um, even though I never do it's just how so I do look. you feel pressure in those situations that you have to be funny or that you have to be scintillating or that you have every word has to sparkle like a sparkler under the night sky <laughs> no well done uh, no no because those people think that I'm funny but also know my flaws I mean those people know I chased my 16 year old best friends out of my parents front yard with a baseball bat those people knew i threw a, a beer bottle at my sister and cut her lip and it's still scarred those people like know that i you know rifle we're lucky we don't have the three strikes law because yeah. you just named two of them those people know like my behavior at high school parties i mean those people know me those people think i'm funny those people also think i'm a you know those people love me but no, I feel no pressure. I mean, the other thing is those people are just as funny, if not funnier than me. So it's like going it's like going to, you know, it's like uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. There's a lot of good actors on screen. So you don't want to, like, try too hard. You just got to, like, fit your niche, you know? OK, that's fair. So the, they're, they're not expecting much out of you. So anything that you can offer is only icing on the cake. I I have found that as my group of male friends has had beautiful women come into their lives. I've tried to set out before a party, before a social engagement, and make sure that I'm picking and choosing how and when I'm using certain tricks in, in my bag. I thought you were going to talk about your outfit. <laughs> so, so like, I set up that uh, Polish horseshoes game, uh, two beer bottles on ski poles about 25 feet apart. Thanks, Mitch Bacon, for the uh, introduction and the McViney brothers. Uh, Hingham, Massachusetts. Beer bottles on top. Two teams of two throwing frisbees at the beer bottle, trying to knock it off. If you need to know the rules, call the landline six one seven seven four four eighteen ninety five. But we'd love to hear from you. But um, I try to kind of like put myself off in an activity where people can self-select whether they want to come and hear me run my mouth for forty-five straight minutes, rather than be at the center of like the shish kebab buffet, commenting on like every piece of summer squash, which just like is like what's running through my mind. See, I'm the guy who likes to be standing right in the middle of the buffet, I think. I think that's a difference. Well, what, you know, eating you, from it, too. You have had 
Um, we said we weren't only going to talk about our friends, but I think this is representative of a lot of people's friendships with old friends out there. You've had a tumultuous emotional roller coaster um, with you and yourself about our friend group. No, everyone else has stayed the same, which is that we love you and we love seeing you. You have gone to both ends of the spectrums about how and when you should apply yourself. So how did you feel? You said you had such a great time last night, and I know you've gotten through some of your deepest and darkest problems, but how did you feel when you walked up and got out of your BMW with California plates to this group of people who were surprised to see you but excited about it? That's a great question, and I'll tell you exactly what it felt like. So I pulled up, um, climbed up this you know very steep, twisting driveway under the night sky, um, and I got out, and there's a big group of people, and it's dark. You can't tell who's who, and you know that you know them, but you're not exactly sure which faces are in the crowd. And then as I stood there, mind flooded with uncertainty for one strange, indecisive moment, I heard this beautiful sound cutting through the darkness, and that sound was Mike O'Donnell's laugh, and it's unmistakable. And it filled my brain with all of these memories of all these great times that Mike would laugh. And anyone who knows Mike knows that he laughs easily and loudly and pleasurably at the slightest incident. And I just heard that and I called out through the darkness, Mike, I hear your laugh. And it was like two strangers in a night. It's like falling overboard and then someone just casts you a lifesaver and you're paddling towards it and you can see the illumination and you know that you're going to grab onto it and eventually end up back on board the ship. And it felt great, and I went right over, and I was happy as a clam and white wine sauce. It's true. It is true. Mike is the person that if anyone in our friend group um, knows that he's there, they know that they're going to have a good time that night. It could be 15 other people that they really didn't like but had never told anyone, but if Mike is there, they could just stand in the corner and be entertained by him the whole time. It doesn't matter if you're at a Chinese restaurant drinking Mai Tais at 9 a.m. or sitting in physics class in seventh period. You're always having fun if you're near Mike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Mike, this podcast is dedicated to you. It's great to have you back in North America. Yeah, Mike's back from Chile. He's the uh, the international sports consultant um, and uh, Korean English teacher on Skype. He's quite he, he's quite uh, an enigma of sorts. He is, and in some ways, not at all. Let's just do a tiny bit of background. Let's just open up the arms of the podcast to a to a further listening group because I think that's something we're always striving to do. Mike has been on the podcast. He's 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 made you know just as many appearances as anyone else. He lives in the southern tip of Chile, and teaches Korean children English. On Skype at 8 a.m. every morning. Actually, he said he had to be up at 5 a.m. and he was teaching them Korean history. Wow, he's he's diversified his teaching portfolio. He's been promoted. So he, one wonders why they have Mike teaching them Korean history rather because it makes sense that he'd be teaching English. But there you go. So he's a great example. If you're out there right now, if you're 24, if you're still living in Alston after graduating from Northeastern, if you sort of hate your friends and you can't drink another cheap American beer again and you're wondering what you're going to do with your life, you're smart, you're independent, you're funny, but you just don't want to live the life that maybe your family has you know, laid out there for you, not pressured you to do, but said, like, here are some models of how people that we know live their lives and you want to go completely nuts— Move to South America, 
move to a cool town where nobody really has heard of you or lives there, buy land because it's so cheap, marry a nice, uh, heartwarming, family-oriented South American girl, and come home once every 18 months, and you're pretty much going to be set up with a great life. You go camping, rafting. You get to chainsaw the the trees on your land, and you're far enough away. It feels like you moved to another planet. And that's Six easy steps. Alex just laid them out. <laughs> the mic, the mic playbook. All right, Saul. So, well, uh, we have a lot to talk about. Um, tell us. Why don't you just give us a little update on how how you got here to um, this side of the country? Last time we talked, you were in California, and, and give us the the road trip recap or some highlights at least. Terrific. So I spent a, a happy four or five days. Driving through the country, I took the middle route, 80. I'd done north, I'd done south, uh, so middle seemed like the natural ne- next step. Um, and it was it was great. You know, I, I have satellite radio, uh, so I could happily stay in my car 24 hours a day indefinitely for eternity and never run out of things to listen to, especially in campaign season. Um, so I drove a lot. Uh, I didn't get any speeding tickets, when I, which I was proud of. I knew the Kansas cops would be licking their dirty little chops at the sight of a California plate BMW just cutting through their state at 85 miles an hour. Um, so I, I got through, and it was a great trip. I love driving. I love driving cross-country. I love driving when there's no traffic. Um, a couple impressions, I guess, that I got in no particular order, the things that I thought about as I was driving. Um, number one, I kind of will understand when Tesla takes up over the world one day, because I remember stopping at these tiny little random gas stations in Nevada, speed limits, 85 miles an hour, nothing's around, you're in the, or the salt flats of Utah or something like that. And you pull over to get gas and then you see this row of Tesla chargers, red lights, Tesla sign sitting there, obviously no Tesla's plugged into them, but presumably ready to charge you up if you are in an, in a Tesla. And this is why Elon Musk will one day try to take over the country because he's just building these superchargers all over the place. I mean, if they're at an isolated gas station in Utah every time I stop to get gas, who knows where they are? So that was something I saw that I did not expect to see. And again, 20 years from now when Tesla is running things, Let's play this podcast, and I can say I told you so. And just quick aside to that, I think really important about those Western Tesla supercharger stations, which he's planned so well, is that the source of that power is actually coming from a renewable energy unit. It's either either a wind farm or a solar panel, and that is the key for me. People are, you know, there's this vast discussion in this country right now, natural gas, good, bad, all that stuff. When you turn your lights on in, I don't know, probably 65% of this country, you're burning coal. And people forget that. Like, it's the simplest things in life. The fact that you don't see the coal smoke going up when you turn your light switch means you you just think it's electricity. It's clean. Turning on a light bulb is clean. Well, turning on a light bulb in the northeast of the United States is not clean. Maybe they're burning oil. Maybe they're burning coal. I mean, I guess now more more often they're starting to burn natural gas. That's why I think nuclear power is a good solution. But what I love about Tesla is he's like, we got all this wide open space on the West Coast. We have tons of sun. We have tons of uninhabitable land at this point that we can put wind farms up. Let's not just be able to charge the cars. Let's charge the cars with clean energy. Otherwise, this whole thing is stupid. So 
Remember when you're making decisions about things like emissions or food or power or whatever, figure out where exactly the source of power is actually coming from. Tr you know, track it all the way back. Go Tesla. Buy some stock. They're overvalued. Um, <laughs> number two, I don't know how bugs even exist given how many I killed per hour with my car and mathematically calculating how many other cars must also kill by the hundreds literally every hour how are there any bugs left out there why why doesn't traffic just take them all out it's amazing every time i'd stop every hour to clean bugs off my windshield by the hundreds i'd do those calculations some back of the sleeve math and just think my god why aren't they extinct already random thoughts i know no, that's good. Um, and yet the world is petrified of bugs right now. And bugs will end, end up being kind of what, what takes us down. Um, if you need more, I can ice down that old cup, too, that's in the kitchen. I might have a touch more. All We're right. talking about coffee, not bugs. I no, made a, ha I made a half bugs. carafe of French press Rwandan direct trade from George Howell Coffee Roasters in Newton, Mass. I'd say give him a seven on the artisan coffee scale. And Saul just crushed a cup and a half. I thought he'd be jazzed, but with that addictive personality, he apparently needs more. Take some more gin in that cup now. Uh, maybe that's the key to the Olympics, is a bunch of BMWs driving back and forth across Brazil to get, get rid of the mosquitoes. Sign me up. I'll head down tomorrow. <laughs> All right, number three, I realize that I hate to say it, um, but truck drivers are assholes. And I know that we like to just talk about them being the backbone of our society and all of that. And it's a good, honest wage. But if you can count the number of times when you're driving cross country and you see a truck swerve into the left lane and slow the 30 cars behind it by 20 miles an hour to save itself four seconds and get its refrigerated shitty heads of lettuce to some supermarket four seconds quicker when none of that really matters to anyone except the guy in the driving seat, you understand that truckers, I just don't have sympathy for them. And when I say I don't have sympathy, I mean 20 years from now, when Uber just replaces them with autopilot trucks and there are no truckers, I'm not going to feel that bad because I just hate being on the roads with them. Is that is that okay to say? I am going to joke about suicide so if you don't think that's funny or you're uh sensitive to that just fast forward five he's minutes. saying if this is a trigger moment then just step away step away no well i'm gonna say this is the joke if you're on like the border of thinking about you might want to just end it like you, the, this world's not for you you're looking towards what the next one is and you need like a push you really like you're you're in between the decision but you want something to really just get you over the edge Think about the amount of trucks that are going across the United States of America. Ugh, sickening. It's just like I, and you know they, you know, you're like, well, couldn't we invent a better way? Yeah, we did in the 1800s. It's called trains, and then and then because of the 1950s, because of post-war American, you know, urban suburban planning, because of the God bless the Eisenhower interstate system because of white flight, because every family who fought in the Great War needs a green lawn and a car and a garage and, you know, a bunch of crap from from Sunbeam and GE on their kitchen counter. We created an infrastructural system where everything had to go on an 18 wheel truck. And speaking of Tesla, 
Forget about making. I mean, I know that this is the business model. You sell rich people a pro, an, a, you know, an unprofitable car, and then you work backwards until you can make something for the mass market. But can we just get a Tesla truck out there, a self-automated driving Tesla truck? Thank but, you, exactly. And and you know, we always talk about unprogrammed with a non-asshole setting. <laughs> we we you know we know they're hopped up on now. They, these could be great podcast listeners. If there's anyone who would listen to this podcast who's gotten to the bottom of the barrel on iTunes and needs any crap to listen to that's out there, we're a perfect podcast for you. So we probably should worry about it. But there is a weird thing. Where and if there's any truckers out there for those long halls of empty highway, just tune in and hear us talking shit about you. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like you know, there's a weird thing where people uh, like to listen to things that make them angry. So maybe this is actually a good segment for truckers but (laughs) let's just dip into the business excavator uh a bit here so the business excavator as a quick review is a is a reoccurring um segment on Saul versus alex landline podcast about where we give a great idea that we know we could make tons of money on but we're too lazy and ineffective to accomplish ourselves so you take it you run with it put in the sweat earn the money and then we'll come back and sue you for the patent exactly so how about silent trucks and buses? Is that so hard? Is, it shouldn't be. Because I think a lot of your annoyance with a truck and a bus, I mean, think about all the city buses, it's just the sound. It's like if the if they were passing you on those hot Kansas, you know, uh, I-80 stretches, but it was like a silent, like, wisp past your car, it would be one thing. But it's that, like, like that's what makes people so angry. It's hot. It's smelly. It's loud. The and noise. I despise it. So we can't. Again, it's always. It's the same thing. And and you know, it's a cliche. But let's use it. We can fly to the moon, but we can't make a silent truck. That's what you're telling me. Now I'm just going to digress a little. And for the last thing about truckers being wiped out, I'm going to talk about two examples: independent bookstores and taxi drivers. Here's my hypothesis. A while ago, it looked like Barnes & Noble was going to wipe out the independent booksellers, which it kind of half did. And then Amazon came along, and it looked like that was going to wipe out just everyone else. No person would be able to sell books in the country except for Amazon because they were cheaper. Anyway, I don't have to explain it. But the point is independent booksellers made a comeback, and they didn't go down. And even when borders went belly up and bankrupt, independent bookstores kept going. And to me, a huge part of that was because of the fact that people like them. Their customers have relationships with them and feel loyalty. When you walk into an independent bookstore, a lot of the time, especially if it's in your neighborhood, you chat, you ask if there's something you should be reading. It's friendly. It's fun being in there. They host readings and other events. And it's a place where you want to be supporting them. I genuinely feel like that. I know I like reading quite a bit more than my fair share, but I really feel like half the reason these independent bookstores are going strong is people like them, they respect the place they have in the neighborhood, and they go out of their way to support them, even if you end up paying a couple bucks more for a book. Now, let's flip it around to taxis. Uber came along in the last couple years and is now in the process of wiping out taxi companies nationwide, worldwide, and everything else. If there's a taxi company on Pluto, then Uber's going to catch up to it and wipe it out sooner or later. So my point is that it's funny, but no one really seems to give a shit. And I don't give a shit. And the reason is because taxi drivers have always been assholes in my book. I can never recall getting into a taxi 
and liking the experience. At best, you got where you were going with a relatively small expenditure of money and a relatively no-hassle ride. But my thing is for taxi drivers, I think of the times in New York when I'd, at 2 a.m. I'd get picked up from a bar and fall asleep and wake up and know that he'd driven an extra 20 minutes to run the meter up. I think of the taxi driver in Chicago who dropped me at a hotel and then when his credit card swiper wasn't working and I said I was going into an ATM to get cash, got out and tried to fight me and tried to be, had to be held back by hotel security because he was so enraged and they had to explain to this psychopath, Russian I believe, that no, he's just stepping 10 feet across to the ATM machine. He's not trying to rip your family's food away from their mouth. And so I think of all these bad, miserable experiences I've had with taxis and how entitled they are. Let's not forget that, how entitled they are, because they were the only game in town and knew it. Those times when you call and you wait an hour to get into a taxi. And so I'm thinking when Uber comes along, they're not my independent bookstore. Fuck taxis. I don't feel badly for them. And I don't feel any sympathy at the prospect of them being wiped out, even if they have to go part-time it and drive for Uber. Comments? How does this get back to trucks? Because when truck drivers lose a bunch of jobs because their trucks are turned into robots, I'm going to think you should have been nicer to me on the roads and less selfish, and then maybe I'd lobby for you. I probably wouldn't. Well, I love I love everything you just said because only you would then spin that into how they weren't nice to you. That's the reason that they should go. So, <laughs> Absolutely. So, no, I mean, the world would be better if all those truck drivers weren't on the roads. It's like why I take the Merritt Parkway when I go to New York every time. No trucks allowed. It's like all those amazing roads in America we all know here and there where there aren't any trucks allowed. And it feels great seeing that sign, no trucks. Exactly. I think, I mean, even let's take it further I wish you and I could spend a month of our uh, life, and you know, if we get a couple more calls in on the landline, maybe we can. That's all it takes. A couple calls to 617-744-1895. Each call nets us about 500 grand in revenue based on the advertising deals we have. And so- you'll have fun talking to us. You'll probably have more fun talking to us than anything you could possibly be doing at this exact moment <laughs> unless you lead a happy, successful life. So, So my thing is I wish you and I could go to – a, you know, a parking lot, a, a nondescript giant parking lot someplace, and just have a series of 18... You know how they have way stations on the side of the road? Ugh. I want out... We should buy a, we should buy a defunct way station in a state that needs money. We should open up Alex and Saul's way station. We... Trucks pull in. We open up their cargo, not to check for security, not to check for terrorism, not to way because we want to make a decision on whether or not we think that that cargo is worthy of being shipped i mean can you imagine throwing those trucks open here's a bunch of pieces of shit uh here are a bunch of shitty bed frames from taiwan going across the country and they got to get their maximum speed here's a ton of uh you know tortured pork uh raised by slave labor in texas that needs to get shipped to chicago as fast as it can i'll probably give you an eating disorder and, and here's a, i mean yeah i mean here are uh you know here's a bunch of ikea furniture although i bet ikea uses trains i mean here's just like it's just a ton of manufactured crap do we need to keep buying all this stuff now my my uh economy professor at babson last semester would say yes that's how our entire global capital uh, market works. Okay, well, that's one argument. But do we constantly need to be accumulating new stuff? And when you're buying something new, 
can you just make the decision, do I really need this? And like how how many trucks did this go on? How many airplanes did this go on? How many boats did this go on? What landfills is going to get trucked to in three weeks when it breaks or when I decide I don't need it anymore? Yeah, how much is it going to cost for the world to ship this back to the place because it's the wrong size or wrong shape or whatever? It's just like I don't think we need any of the crap that's in these trucks or I don't support. I mean, is this I guess this is just me doing my crazy bit because obviously I'm consuming something that comes on a truck every single day of my life. So this is you're right. We don't need a lot of that. So anyways, I don't know. I guess I, I just had like a, a, a an argument with my brain in the last three seconds where I'm like, do I believe this or not? But the reality is on the surface, very superficially, to me, most of the stuff that's getting trucked all over the world is basically shit I'm not interested in buying. Agreed. Now for the last bit on my, my road trip, I want to tell a story that starts with a BLT in Wyoming and ends with a banana in Iowa. Do we have time for that? Do we have to cut to a commercial break? Most definitely. Okay, perfect. So, um, so yeah, Wyoming, driving through it, got hungry, stopped at one of these truck stop places, went into a little cafe, and I bought a, uh, a BLT. I ate it in the car. It was pretty heavy on the mayonnaise. Not the best BLT I've ever had. Probably not the worst. Then I'm driving along, driving along. I get to Nebraska. Um, and I'm in Nebraska and suddenly start feeling like things... I suddenly start feeling like not all is well, basically. Um, and when you're in your car and you're in Nebraska and there's limited options, that's not a good feeling to have. It's It's not only unsettling, but it has implications that you can't help thinking about or if you take it to the sort of plausible maximum of worst consequences it involves like some pretty embarrassing stuff happening so uh we've all been there but anyway i i started realizing more and more as i'm in nebraska and the bugs are hitting my windshield by the hundreds and i can barely see in the cornfields around me and i'm thinking okay i gotta get to a uh wait a just service station i got to one quick question do you use the banana as a butt plug so you don't poop all over the car? We'll get to that. Okay, good. So, um, so finally, I, I pull up, a, I pull off at an exit, and and feeling a lot of, shall I say, um, gratitude at this exit for being at this exact point in the highway rather than say like a mile and a half further <laughs> away from me. So, um, wait, another aside. That's always the case in these situations. Once you finally get to the designated bathroom um, that you're about to ruin, it's it, you could have never gone another second. It just it's like this natural thing in life where like <laughs> it just so happens right when you're there, like your body, like I think it's like there must be like a radar situation where it like bounces off the porcelain, and as you're getting closer and closer, your body like that's it. That's what I always wonder. I mean, is it a que- half of me always thinks it's just impeccable timing and things just came together and the universe just came together in a way that that saved me but maybe you're right maybe it's your body just radaring and pinging off the off the walls and knowing that that um salvation is near be that as it may um i got in and and parked and just hastily went straight into the uh the gas station and wasn't thrilled to see that it was being the counter was staffed by a couple you know kind of cute nebraska teenage girls um and so forth um and they're chattering to each other about you know the square dancing they're going to do that friday night or whatever is going to happen 
I made that last part up. So obviously I, I, I would have rathered that other people be working, but the situation being as it was, I, I went aggressively and they were starting to close up for the evening and I, I went past them and tried not to present my, my face so that they'd maybe not be able to recognize me. And went in and and you know, I, I spent some time. I spent some time. Uh, Recognize you from the podcast or? Well, no, I, I didn't want them to see my face as I entered the bathroom okay, gotcha. so that I could try to elusively sneak out later and have them think that I had just walked in. You still wanted the opportunity to buy a Diet Coke if, if the uh, opportunity was there or if, if the mood struck after whatever incident was about to happen. <laughs> right. It didn't work, obviously. Um, they They certainly spotted me heading in and and then like i said i i hung out for a while so to speak um and then i emerged and had to just sheepishly walk up to the counter and buy pepto bismol from them and that's just spelling it right out there there can be no doubt about what was going on and so um so then I had then I looked around me anyway. So that that was that's like your that's the closest you'll ever get to having to buy Plan B at the pharmacy with like the night the clothes you have on from the night before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was me. Yeah, wa- walking in and like smeared makeup and like holding my heels in one hand, asking if they had any of that stuff that you know you got to take. So um. So I did that. I looked around and I realized that I was in this weird gas station, the first one I've ever been in that's also a gun shop. Um, and there were just assault rifles hanging on the walls and giant pistols in the counters. So I got this kind of creepy feeling looking around um, there, but I didn't buy any guns. I stuck to my Pepto. Uh, went back outside. I took a nice long walk down this weird Nebraska road, just making sure that I wouldn't need the gas station for anything further. And then I got back in my car and kept driving. Anyway, long story short, fast forward to the next day. Um, I was taking it easy. I didn't want to do any like heavy steak dinners that night. In fact, I fasted partly because I ended up sleeping in some weird Nebraska town that didn't have anything open past probably 9 p.m. And so the next day I'm driving, 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 and I get into um, Iowa. And I had this craving, given everything that had transpired, for just some like fresh fruit, maybe like a, a nice banana or like, you know, a couple apples or just just something not greasy, not fried. I didn't want to ever see a BLT for the rest of my life. I just wanted something from a garden, basically. So I realized after a garden st- in Nicaragua staffed by uh, former drug lords. Well, that's a funny part or a garden in Iowa. Hey, Tim. Sorry, we got some dogs. We got here. dogs. Easy, Tim. Easy, Tim. Easy, boy. Tim the dog on the podcast. All right, keep going. So I stop at like three different places, and I suddenly realize that I'm I'm driving through, as they call it, the breadbasket of America. I'm driving through mile after mile, acre after acre of this agricultural playground where all they do is grow shit all year round, more or less, minus the winter. And it produces food for much of our entire country of 350 million odd people. And I stop at three different exits and check three different stores and gas stations and everything. And there's no fruit. There's no vegetables. There's nothing. Um, The closest I found to vegetables was the sandwich bar of a subway. And finally, in the back of like a truck stop, 
I find a basket of moldy old bananas. And that was the closest I was able to get towards buying something in this agricultural state that grows food for everyone. And I thought, something's weird about this. There's something strange about the fact that you're that unable to buy something fresh in a state whose entire economy revolves around agriculture. This is one of the classic moments in the podcast where I'm about to say something that I've said inside my brain so many times, and I wonder if everyone thinks this way. So I, I guess I apologize if this is exactly what you think. And you Fire away. You don't need me to be the one to tell you. But you needed to replace every time you said, like, stuff or or bread basket or uh, agriculture. The word you were looking for was corn. You were surrounded by corn. You were driving through tons and tons of corn. It was a place that grows tons of corn. And you know what, Saul? You could have gotten local. At Iowa, Nebraska, it's one of the only places you can always get local fruits and vegetables year-round. Because all you needed to do was buy one of 187 products in that convenience store that had corn syrup in it. Because Iowa is producing food that everybody eats in the form of corn syrup and, like, soy lectin. And so there was tons of local seasonal fruits and vegetables. They grow the corn. They harvest the corn. They turn the corn into corn syrup at a plant that Iowa State got a ton of uh, government funding to make as efficient and crazy and Monsanto-ready as possible. They turn that corn syrup out in trucks that look like natural gas trucks. I mean, shit, forget about Obama stopping the transcontinental pipeline they should build a corn syrup pipeline from alberta to the gulf of mexico that's what this country is running on plus we put corn in our in our gas so you're not wrong but um well i know i'm not wrong they're wrong that's how i feel you, so I'm biking across Iowa this summer in Ragbri, which is a 25-year-old bike ride that, uh, or 30-year-old or 40-year-old that gets put on by the Des Moines Register newspaper, and it's for seven days, 20,000 plus people bike from the west side of Iowa to the east side of Iowa in a series of 50, 60 mile an hour. Uh, or 60-mile-a-day rides. The road is blocked off, not only to trucks, but to cars. But I think that there's obviously going to be farmer's markets and stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean, because I guess the point I was trying to make is, yes, there are fresh fruits and vegetables in Iowa, but maybe not on I-80, because I-80 goes through the center of the state where people don't live, and people live in, like, nice, cute towns, and they're progressive towns in Iowa and they're not progressive towns in Iowa and I'm sure that there's people eating a salad but but I can't I can't go driving around the state of Iowa to find a banana well okay here's another business excavator now this one I really want you to do because I really want to sue you not only for the rights but I actually want to take it over and run it what about a series of gas stations like you know you start in a small chain you start someplace like new england or oregon or someplace where people are you know make money and are, are in the know on the internet on a daily basis and you have it be sort of like the hippie co-op gas station actually my uh sister-in-law mary and i talked about this you go in and instead of like chips and all that stuff you could offer like obviously it has the coconut waters and the um kombuchas in the drink area and it's got like somehow has like 
local farm-to-table salads and plastic clamshells and ready-made sandwiches. And it's just like, a del- I mean, that there's a market for that, right? There's definitely a market. Definitely. Definitely a market for that. The people in Teslas would stop there while they're supercharging. Exactly. It's like the new age. Now, is it profitable? No, because that shit that they make with all that Iowa corn is so effing cheap. Everything is so cheap to make. That's why you can get a giant bag of potato chips for like $1.99 because it's costing them two cents and they're shipping it in one of those trucks all across the country. And the taxpayer is subsidizing the growth of that corn because... The senators in Iowa have so much control because they're the first caucus state. It all gets back to politics. Nobody wants to rip agricultural subsidies out of the hands of Iowa farmers because Iowa is the first place that sets great people like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump up to be the next president. And if you do that, then whatever presidential candidate says we can't have more agricultural subsidies, which actually might have been Trump. We should look that up. Um, that's the one that loses Iowa. That's the one that campaign doesn't win. And that's the one that loses in, you know, doesn't get the White House. But I will say to you, because I'm all over the place here, because this is stuff that I really is really in my wheelhouse. At what point do we just say, you know who that sucks for besides you driving through once every 12 years? The people that live there, where's the personal responsibility? Where's the person in Iowa being like, I want some fresh fruit? Because, you know. Well, that's on them. That's what I'm saying. If you live in Iowa, then you got to deal with that. I'm not going to sweep in like the American military in Iraq and try to fix the Iowa food situation because that'll end up with sectarian violence between like Lay's potato chips, the Coca-Cola companies, and like, you know, whoever's making Hostess in that neck of the woods. So I just I I don't know what to do about it. Like it's like in, a, in some ways it's like let's fast forward all of them dying of diabetes so that we can like have a little b- bit more of a balanced healthcare system. So just just start twenty years from now with the, with a new generation of farmers who can grow fresh fruit for me to eat when I'm driving through. In the defense of the Midwestern farmer, if you do sort of. A little bit of digging you realize that they are the ones who are at the tip of the spear or not all of them there are agricultural influencers in the breadbasket of this country who are motivating people to try to do things in a way that would promote a wider variety of crops a uh you know lower yield higher organic um, makeup in the crops. People are trying to prove that actually if you like rotate your field around all your acreage that you can get a higher yield every five years. And I'm, you- I'm just saying though there's there's plenty of problems with a place like California but it's it's at least nice to have a 12 year old South American boy selling fresh cherries from a farm stand on the side of the road. Yeah. Why can't a 12 year old Iowan boy go do that for a change? I think they do. Um, well they should Go over to the roads. I don't know. I, I agree with you. You know what? I'm, I should stop defending it. It's it's an abyss. It's an abyss of flattened hockey pucks of meat that were like beaten in a warehouse in uh you know wherever in Oklahoma and then shipped on one of those trucks. So I agree. And like partially partially hydrogenated oils, uh you know gluten gluten party buns, uh the whole nine yards. Last last little tidbit from the road trip. 
and I need to say this because I know you'll be proud of me for it, or at least I hope you will, and I've imagined that you'd be proud. So I'm going, I, I take a little detour through Niagara Falls, haven't seen it before. Side note, um, I spent time on the Canadian side, and then I stayed on the American side, which was a disaster in comparison. The Canadian side, it's, it's happy, it's friendly, it's beautiful, they have the better waterfall, um, it's built up, there's a nice walkway by the falls, there's little kind of pubs where you can stop and get a pint of bitters, everyone's in a good mood, they're smiling, it's pretty. And then you drive across to the American side, and it's kind of grim. And there's like a really, you know, shitty casino, and there's places that are kind of run down and boarded up. And you just wonder, you got more or less the same waterfalls. Granted, the Canadians, they got the horseshoe, you know, they're doing better in terms of the, the visual impact. But there's a stark difference between them. What did, they, what did these enterprising Canadians do right, and how did the Americans get it so wrong? And don't even get me started on the hookers. Totally different if you cross that river. Totally different. So um, so anyway, here's where you're proud of me. I obviously stayed in that overpriced, expensive casino hotel <laughs> in terms of my hotel. Um, and I went, I went down to eat, and obviously it was pretty late. And, of course, I picked the one of the few restaurants it was open which was the most expensive restaurant in the entire casino an italian place um so i go down and they seat me at this little tiny table at the back of the restaurant where i felt i was out of the action i couldn't tell what was going on and they give me the menu after like 10 minutes of me sitting there and every single thing was so expensive i'm talking 25 30 dollar chicken parmesan $50 ribeye, $40 schnitzel, you name it. It was an overpriced menu even by my gluttonous Bay Area standards. And this is in Canadian dollars or American? Well, no, we're in America Okay, now. sorry. Yeah. Just... So I sit there for about 10 minutes being ignored by the waitstaff, even though I was one of like three tables in the entire restaurant. And I got this growing feeling that eating is supposed to make you happy and spending a lot of money on dinner isn't an automatic route to happiness, but it, if you're doing it, you should get happiness out of that experience. And I realized that no matter what happened for the rest of this dinner, I was going to be unhappy. There was no doubt about it. I was miserable even sitting there pre-martini. And so I stood up, I marched out of the place, and I walked around that town, Niagara Falls, I guess it's called, and I found my way to this little local pizza shop that had some live music playing, all the locals were congregating, and I sat at the bar and ordered a $15 margarita pizza and had a great meal. So please tell me you're proud of me. It's amazing. You went in search of culture. Yep, I searched out culture, and I abandoned my predilection towards expensive overpriced Italian food, and I found great underpriced Italian food. And... Ultimately, the food was probably better, but even if it had been worse, the atmosphere far outweighed whatever problems the food were going to create. Definitely. And it was better. The food was definitely better. That first place was not. There's nothing good about it. There couldn't have been. All right. Well, one last little story, uh, and then we're going to end part one for you and uh, give you some info about the pod. And then we'll have another great part two coming up uh, for the next episode. But um, part two has some must watch tv in it i'm just saying yeah you cannot part, miss part two yeah part two we're really gonna 
get we'll get back into Saul's dating life and uh I a little will, budgeting. I'll talk about my anxiety attack at the grocery store. So And some godfather speculation. Oh right. Man, we got a lot to get through. So but luckily the, the guns are loaded, we're about to start firing. So I just want to end this part because I think it ties nicely into some of the international themes we've been going on, some of your discoveries about local um restaurants versus sort of like the corporate chain model, let's say, or just sort of the the ballroom hotel model. So this business school I go to, Babson, very fun, two-year program, and it's highly international. It always has been. Roger Babson was a global figure in his own mind. He's kind of a crazy guy, but he went around the world looking for the sons of international businessmen to bring back to America to train in business and then sent off into the world. So Babson's always had a very international bent, and, you know, something like 65% of my classmates are from out of the country. And I love them. And we got tons of uh, South and Central Americans, a lot of Indians um, and other Asians. And um, I'm trying to think who's the other. I mean, that's pretty much it. C- Central South America, India, China, Korea, Japan, um, Thailand. Anyways, not a, no one European. But. That's not the story. The story is this. Every once in a while, there'll be an event in downtown Boston. We all are scattered around suburban Boston because the school is outside in Wellesley. And there's some sort of thing, somebody's birthday or, hey, it's Wednesday night. Let's all get together for drinks or it's a celebration of the end of the semester. And so these people do what they think is best. And a lot of times it's planned by an international student because they're the ones who are away from their family and friends and they want to go explore versus a lot of us from the United States are here with our wives or even with our kids and we kind of have a routine in the Boston area a lot of us or whatever it's just a different vibe so they plan an event and we go we go we go to it um, but every time I go to these events it's at some gigantic Boston bar, which is like the worst iteration of a Boston bar, which is already a bad iteration of a bar. Like we're already we're already behind the eight ball here, right? We already know it's going to be a bunch of like Charlies from, you know, white towns in New England who went to college there and now have some job selling insurance or something like that. So it's like. We were, you know, we, we got to spice it up here. Like, if anything, like, New York might need a little less eclectic. Boston needs more eclectic at every moment of the day. Definitely. Like, you always have, like, put a spice of chili powder. And to Boston's credit, they've been working on it. Like, the food scene is better. The cocktail scene is better. They're trying to get a rooftop bar here and there. They're trying to, you know, go kayaking down the Charles River or through Fort Point Channel or whatever. They're trying. They're not succeeding, but they're trying. So... We'll always show up at this party and it'll be like the setup is basically 4,500 square feet, 4,500 flat screen TVs, 4,500 showing the Red Sox. uh, Exactly. Or worse, they're showing like the West Coast feed of around the horn on ESPN. (laughs) 4,500 metal bottles of Bud Light and like music that's so loud. Everything is eleven dollars. Everything is start a tab with your credit card. No pool tables, no ping pong tables, no, um, what's it called, pinball machines. And you spend the entire night screaming at each other, not out of anger, out of the hope of hearing what somebody says. Now, add into the fact that everyone's international, 
And so you, no one speaks English fluently or, you know, not fluently, that's wrong, but no one's a native English speaker that people's loved ones are there, like girlfriends, boyfriends, fiancés, married ones. They speak worse English than whoever the like primary Babson person is. And then the fact that we're all business school people, so we love to talk. So it's not like we're there all to just like enjoy a cafe setting in Paris. We're there to like hash out someone's idea that we hashed out in call in class, but like we get to drop some f bombs and maybe like smoke a joint out on the street in between. So it's like you're a, not in shavasana. You're it, saying yeah, exactly. It's like people want to get it on while they're at this stuff, and Aggressive. I just wonder like it's like I feel like I need to start the Babson dive bar club and every saturday night go to because if you were from bogota or if you're from buenos aires and i go there i do not want to go to what the equivalent of like an airport bar is in the center of the most tourist edition so here's the question let's not focus on how much this sucks because i've already made my affirmation that it does why is this where they choose do they think that the version of America that they should be seeing is the Times Square version because that's the most different from – and I would argue that can't be the case. I mean corporations are everywhere in the world right now. There's a, time, there's a version of Times Square in Croatia, right? So, I mean it's not called Times Square, but there's some commercialized district with overpriced beers in the center of town near the main train station. So why is this where these people are choosing to do because they don't know? We should be in Cambridge. We should be in Somerville. We should like they all speak Spanish. Let's go let's go someplace where the people behind the bar don't speak English. Let's go someplace where you can still illegally smoke cigarettes inside. Like we are not seeing the world. We are seeing a, a hedge fund running a a profit margin basically. Well, look, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, for anyone who's trying to quit drinking, uh who needs AA? Skip the church basement scene. Go to this bar that Alex just described. Spend three hours there having someone screaming in your ear while you're drinking your fourth metal Bud Light of the night, and you'll never drink again. I don't. I don't even think I drink again, and I love drinking. It's so true. So free free tip of the night. Uh, if you're trying to stop, find that Boston bar. There's probably one on every block go during some kind of networking happy hour event and you'll be so sick of yourself and everything around you that you will never want to repeat the experience again. Secondly, it is very interesting that a place chooses uh, a bar like that or a scene like that as a way of saying, come meet America. And maybe they're doing it with some measure of irony. Maybe they're saying, you're in America now, it's annoying, it's brash, it's loud, and it's kind of deep down always telling you that if you don't like it you can go fuck yourself and welcome enjoy being here for two years and then leaving back to your country it's astonishing why they couldn't think of a better activity to do whether it's sitting around some outdoor patio cooking together or whether it's going to like some international restaurant or whether it's doing anything in a pretty cool city with a lot of different opportunities that doesn't involve watching around the horn on 45 60-inch plasma televisions. It's really weird to me. I totally agree with you. It's almost like they're trying to say, welcome to the classic definition of a shitty networking experience. You can all enjoy it. Go fuck yourself. Good night. It's, you're absolutely right. And I would argue against the irony because I don't think they, they don't know. It's, it's interesting. International students in America, to me, don't 
it's only us Americans who have like seen the pinnacle of America of world domination. That's 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 when you become ironic. You need people who are against your own success to have true irony, right? They're yeah. still they're still like in this position of. I mean, if you're Indian, you're not going to be ironic for another hundred years after you become like the steel manufacturing giant that you're about to become like they're just on the way up these countries they're just about to buy all the cars and pollute the ozone the way we have the last they're so excited years. they're so excited they're they're not there's no irony and maybe that's it maybe they're ready to become but the beauty of america is that you can go to a hookah bar on thursday and a churrascaria on friday and like a American brunch on Saturday and then sit at a cafe that's like modeled after Paris on Sunday. And that's and Amer- you never have to leave Vegas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and, you know, going to Argentina is amazing. And you can do like what are those big? I mean, do you remember or Tim would remember what are those giant barbecues that they have family barbecues where it's like asadas t- asadas. Right. So you could go to Argentina and go to Asadas for a month straight, and it would be awesome, and it would be such a rich cultural experience. There would be a part of me, at least, who was like, okay, like the third Asada in a row, I, I'm, I, I see what's going on here, and I'm like, I'm not bored, but I'm like, maybe I end up like just throwing a little bitch fit and like just like being mad that like I, I don't like how long this is taking or something like that. And I got bored, but granted, it's because everyone there was speaking Spanish to each other, and I sat there speaking English to myself. Right. It's one-dimensional. It doesn't mean it's an incredible dimension, but or it's multidimensional to itself. So all of a sudden, you're in this place where it's like, we can do everything, anything you want. We could take a boat around Boston Harbor. We can go get lobster rolls in Portsmouth in an hour. Shit, you guys have money. I'll help you rent a bus. Like... Let's go jump in the ocean at the Cape. Let's, and I mean, maybe it's my job to do these things for these people. I think it is. I think it is too. I why don't Why don't you host a weekend in Nantucket? Say so you're going to go to an island and you're going to see something different than a Boston sports bar, and I you're going to like it ten times more. I think, and they're down for that. Like they go skiing at Killington and all that. But I think, to just because I've, you know, we all learn that we can always spin all the problems that we need to fix into one large conversation. Let's stick from a business point of view, in the one tiny place where we need to execute. The next time I... And even I went with a small group of good friends from Columbia to watch the Columbia soccer game the other night. We ended up, and he and my buddy, to his credit, he found a specific bar we knew would play the game. We ended up in this horrible, and I, I, I do not say this lightly, horrible fucking bar in the theater district. How bad was it? It was so bad. It was like... You could watch the chefs through the open kitchen texting because of how busy it wasn't. And they they had like that classic craft beer selection of beers that are not local and are all owned by one conglomerate and therefore all distributed by the same person. Like, like Sam Adams, Stella, and like Sierra Nevada. Exactly. It, 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 on the head with a Sculpin Grapefruit IPA where I like, I want to get every Sculpin Grapefruit IPA keg in the country together and like set them on fire. And then um, the waitress was rude and they wouldn't let us, t- there were there were 60% empty tables and we're sitting in those high wooden back chairs and some of us can't face the TV because the TV's like one level back behind the bar. And so we take some chairs from an empty table next to us. And the waitress comes over and says, we can't do that. We need to leave those set in case other people come in. That was my overpriced Niagara Falls Italian casino restaurant. 
you found your way to hell. The only difference is you stayed. So that's it. I just challenge you people out there. When you step in, you're meeting an old friend, a new friend, somebody you don't know that well, and you walk into a place and you realize that it's not a good representation of what your community can do and they don't know better, or even if they should know better, teach them a lesson and say, this bar sucks. It has no soul. I want to take you around the corner to a better spot. And like... Let's not all act like we're better than dive bars or even like, I don't know, Irish pubs or whatever. It's like if you're going for a bar, you're already agreeing. I don't know. I, there's a place for every bar, but there's no place for a bar that resembles an airport unless you're in an airport. That's it. Well, I think that sums up part one. So here's the thing. Remember, if you're at a place and you don't like it, it feels joyful and liberating to just leave and not spend your money there. Because good news, it's a big world out there, and there's many, many places who would love to take your money who aren't that place. And the amount of time you're going to waste is actually like 17 minutes. So, like, take a deep breath, steal a couple pretzels from the bowl if you're, like, starving like me and having an anxiety attack over it. And just take, you know, maybe don't, maybe look up from your phone. Where are you? Where does it seem? Where does it feel like there could be more commerce? Is it left or is it right? Does it feel like two blocks down there might be a, a couple of bars on the corner? Does it feel like if you drive down this way a half a mile, you might reach a little town? And just feel it out and, and feel look at a place. Try to think whether you think it's good or not. Don't get on Yelp. Don't read the menu every time you need to find a new place to go. Camera. Um, so... Thank you so much. Landline podcast, Saul versus Alex, Alex versus Saul. Get we want to hear you calling in. We want live voices on the phone. We want fish wriggling on the line. That's it. We do. And uh, check us out on iTunes. Check us out on SoundCloud. Check us out on Stitcher. We're up on Stitcher as far as I know. Uh, check us out on talkforliving.com and keep the support coming. 50th episode gala is approaching. We will talk to you soon. Thank you. Happy 4th, everyone. 